That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to stay on top of all the latest news from China in only a few minutes a day through our email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, or at the website SupChina.com. SupChina offers uncensored reporting all about China, and you can read about everything from media policy to the Me Too movement, from the Belt and Road Initiative to China's ongoing draconian repression of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. We are sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I'm in Washington, D.C. today. Joining me from the rustic splendor of Goldcorn Holler is a man whose head-turning physical beauty really puts the 10 in Tennessee, Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn, <laughs> editor-in-chief of SubChina. Jeremy, ya beauty, greet the people, won't you? <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, there's nobody around who can see me to uh, say the truth uh, that uh, I am not putting the ten in Tennessee. But anyway, thank you. Well, uh, I mean, to me, you will always be beautiful. In the last show, we spoke with uh, Julian Koo about some of the legal questions around Canada's arrest at the behest of the U.S. of Meng Wanzhou, who is CFO, of course, of Chinese telecommunications equipment giant Huawei and the daughter of its founder, Ren Zhengfei. This week... We're going to look at the technological and national security dimensions of this. And of course, at the geopolitics, we'll talk about what's at stake in this move by Washington, what the motives might be, and what actual threats Huawei might pose. Joining us to sort through all these issues at the nexus of technology, security, and politics are two of the best in the business. First, we have Sam Sachs, cybersecurity policy and digital China economy fellow at New America, which some of you probably still know by its former moniker, the New America Foundation. Sam was formerly at CSIS. Uh, I've had the great pleasure of sharing a couple of panels with her recently, and her insights and things tech are just fantastic. So Sam, welcome to Seneca. Thanks so much. Also joining us is Paul Triolo, practice head in geotechnology at the Eurasia Group. Paul is an outspoken and deeply knowledgeable observer of China's tech scene, and we're very proud to say columnist for SubChina. A very warm welcome to Seneca, Paul. Thank you. I'm really honored to finally be on the podcast. I really have enjoyed it over the, uh, listening to it over the past few months. Oh, wonderful. Great, great, great. Well, anyway, I'm going to cut to the chase here. Uh, is it fair to say that bank fraud, violation of Iran sanctions, or whatever else Huawei or its CFO might have perpetrated are actually secondary here, and that there's something else that's really at stake, something else that's the real issue. Couldn't you argue that one bigger issue is simply Huawei itself, namely that the U.S. and increasingly at the insistence of the U.S., its allies, just don't trust the company. They believe its ties to the Chinese Communist Party run really deep, and they just want to see the company on its knees or even completely supine uh, with a minimum footprint in telecom and especially in the very sensitive new 5G networks. Or, or couldn't you even argue that it's not just Huawei, that it's China, really, uh, and that Huawei is just kind of proxy for Beijing in American thinking? I mean, I thought that was pretty clear in the reporting about, you know, the Five Eyes meeting in Nova Scotia, for example. Uh, Kaiser, great question. <laughs> 
So yeah, I think you know the sort of looking at this uh, the short term issue. Yes, I mean uh, there was the the arrest of of, uh, of Hmong in in Vancouver in, in and of itself was a fairly uh, unprecedented move on on the U.S. part, but uh, it certainly comes amidst a long history of U.S. concerns about Huawei as a company. So the fact that she was involved uh, appears to have been involved in, in in violating Iran sanctions is sort of almost a secondary issue to the the, the U.S. concern over Huawei as a company, and this goes back at least a decade. Uh, and I think it's come to the fore now primarily because of the 5G networks that you mentioned, because mm, yeah. the stakes are much higher now. Sam, what do you think? People have had it out for Huawei for years, but now there's a platform for that. And I think we're in a climate now where there's sort of an unrestrained environment to go after Huawei um, or Huawei, as I've heard for years, people <laughs> refer to it as Huawei. It's just really come to resent, represent something so much more than a company. It's this sort of everything that we fear about China's technological and cyber capabilities is now represented by Huawei. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Paul, uh, can you give us some context here? We're talking about 5G networks, but can we spend a few minutes to make sure that our listeners and I <laughs> understand what exactly 5G is and what's at stake here? How transformative is 5G likely to be? When are we all going to be on 5G the way we're all pretty much now on 4G? And are there projections about how much capital expenditure we're talking about in major markets? How much is at stake in terms of money? Well, it's a complicated issue, Jeremy, and a huge, a huge and important issue. So 5G is really, I would say, much more transformative than the shift from 3G to 4G. Because the difference uh, with 5G that's, that also gets back to some of these security concerns is that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be much more than your phone having a better ability to stream live high-definition video at a football game. The real transformative portion of 5G are the are the two the, the two out of the three secondary parts of 5G. The first part is up, updating the speed of, of mobile networks uh, in general for consumers. But the other two parts involving ultra-reliable and low latency, latency communications and massive machine-to-machine -machine communications, this is the jargon of 5G, those are specifically about machine-to-machine -machine communications. So think of things like autonomous vehicles, smart factories with robots communicating uh, you know, with infrastructure. Uh, think about VR, AR, uh, and, and all sorts of other applications that they're going to run on top of. So, sorry, what is VR, oh, sorry, virtual AR. reality and augmented reality? So you, oh, VR, yeah, AR. VR, AR. Oh, sorry, okay. I'm, I'm sorry for the jargon. There's a lot of jargon in 5G, <laughs> which I'll try to avoid. But so 5G is 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 going to roll out over a period of time. So that also gets we, we can relate this back to the Huawei problem because it's very it's going to be very expensive because those second two pieces of the network involve a tremendous amount of capital investment. And mm. so the first part can be built on existing networks. So as we as we think about you know who's going to develop 5G, Huawei has has moved into this position where it's almost unique among the major players globally and that it can produce all elements of 5G from handsets to data centers, you know, and, and everything in between. So that's that's why Huawei is important. But the transformative nature of this also means more data running around on the network and it means many more connected devices and it means, you know, critical infrastructure data flying around on 5G, which wasn't really hasn't really been the case so much with 4G. So this is the this is gets back to why people are concerned about 5G. More data, uh, more devices uh, and 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 uh, you know the 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 um, all the applications built on top of it, which will also generate economic benefits, for example. So it really is transformative. 
That was pretty impressively jargon-free, I thought. <laughs> pretty intelligible. <laughs> the, one, uh, the one word I still... Can you explain latency? Because that always comes up when we hear yeah, about sure, download sure. speeds. How do you explain latency? Latency is the time it takes for a particular... You know, when you click your, your mouse for something to actually happen. So the key is that with 4G, there's a lot of, there's a lot of latency problems in the network. So if you're going to have, for example, autonomous vehicles communicating in real time with, back with data centers or amongst themselves to avoid collisions and accidents, you need a very reliable system that has very minimal latency so that when, when a car reacts to something, it can do that almost instantaneously. And the current systems don't allow that. So that's why you have to build out and push out infrastructure closer to things like highways and buildings so you get that latency down uh, and you can run some of those really high-end applications like autonomous vehicles. Sam, I guess you don't play network video games. <laughs> I know what latency no. is. <laughs> it is but, a little bit jargony. Yeah. But maybe what well, Sam you can do though uh, is is explain some of Huawei's capabilities in five G. I mean, Paul mentioned that they can sort of do end to end. Are we seeing China through companies like Huawei trying to push an actual standard? I mean, way back when we were rolling out, it was still in the era of two G uh, and uh, getting ready to roll out three. China Mobile got saddled with this sort of indigenously developed uh, standard called TDS-CDMA. I remember writing a lot about that, and I think it was like, are they now rolling out a similar Chinese standard, or are they looking just for a seat at the table? Where are they in terms of, of uh, participation in standard setting? So one of the, the things that we hear a lot is Huawei is looking to have a bigger seat at the table or a voice in international standards setting around 5G. Mm. So let's break that down a bit and sort of t- talk about what's what's going on there. Um, it's true. We've heard major statements come out from senior leadership in China talking about this concept of having a, a the term is a, a right to speak. And that's something that Paul and I and others have translated and talked about. Um, and they are sending more representatives to the international bodies that are actually hammering out standards. What do we mean by the standard? These are the technical specifications, which are going to determine um, a lot. There's going to be commercial gains that's going to come from it. One of the things that I think we need to distinguish, though, is Yes, Huawei and other Chinese companies definitely are exercising more influence in these international standards bodies. But what does that mean? What's the consequence of it? And I think sometimes this consequence gets blurred. So does that mean that they are going to use their influence in international standards setting around around 5G to create more areas that can be hacked into, that can be exploited for military, for intelligence purposes? Or does that mean that they are going to have a commercial advantage that comes with that? And those are two very separate issues. And I think that, and Paul, I'd love to have you weigh in on this as well. I think that the our view has been that the, it's more of a commercial advantage that comes from that. You know, these working groups, they're very technical, right? And if you talk to people that sit in the working groups, this is not a process that's necessarily open to having people show up and have a political agenda, right? These are engineers yeah. hammering out technical right. details and they have to, it works by consensus. So is that subject to sort of political influence? I would say no, um, but Paul would love your thoughts on that too. Yeah, Paul. What yeah, do you think? I mean, I mean, what's driving this is you know the, is really the the issue of royalties. So in four G, three G, and four G, there were no real major Chinese players that were that were able to establish standard essential patents uh, and be part of sort of the patent pool that that exists around these kinds of technologies. So they're paying a lot of money to Qualcomm, for example, which is the U.S. leader in five in four G has been and will lead in five G. So Huawei has and the Chinese government with Chinese government backing has devoted a tremendous amount of money to R and D, research and development of technologies that are going to 
would be critical to 5G. So at the standards bodies, there's a, there's a rule that you have to bring your intellectual property there, and then sort of the best the best technical solution wins. Right. Uh, it's a it's a very political politically free process because the goal is to get the best uh, best quality technology, and companies come there and they and they basically they they pony up their intellectual property uh, for others to see, and then it's really a merit based system. And Huawei has learned to play this game very well, but they also to play the game you have to have done the R and D and and bring things to the table. So um, really think about standards as a recipe. So uh, the three GPP body, this is a body that that sets the standards. They they come up with a recipe. Here's the best technology for the recipe for five G, and then anybody can build to that recipe. So the recipe is a separate thing, and then the recipe is based on the on um, what are called standard essential patents. And so there is an economic piece of that. But what happens is if companies are building the equipment, you know, there's there's a it's in a patent pool, and so there's some offsetting patents. And so yeah, Huawei will gain some commercial advantage in this in terms of the patents. But Qualcomm and 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 Broadcom and Intel and a lot of other companies and Ericsson and Nokia in the EU are also going to get get patents to uh, own patents. So it's a very global process, and it's actually kind of an in, a really interesting uh, 5G. It's like this. It's, it's probably the most global and participatory standard setting process that's ever happened. The most complex one because there's so many new pieces of 5G, for example, compared to 4G. So these bodies a, are we talking about like the ITU? Well, or? no, the ITU. The ITU sort of sets the parameters. This ITU sets the requirements. So uh-huh. what is the latency? And then 3GPP. It was based. It started oh, with right, 3, right, 3GPP. Right. 3GPP is the body that sets the standards, and they have subgroups that work on different pieces of the network, the core of the network, the radio part of the network, and the cyber and the security part of the network. So, for example, Huawei is on many of the committees, the subcommittees, uh, and ZTE also, that are setting these standards. And um, from what we understand, Huawei is very, gets very high marks on the security side, ironically, <laughs> uh, for bringing good solutions on the security side. So they're very much a player within the industry groups that are all, these are all companies that are bringing their intellectual property and their expertise to the table. So they're, they're very much a player. Yeah, I've actually heard that on the working group that's focused on cybersecurity, Huawei has been a better partner and, and sort of has more to offer on the cybersecurity front than other companies from some of the other participating countries. You know, however you want to interpret that, that's what, you know, we've, we've had some conversations around that, which is interesting. Okay, so Paul and Sam, and maybe we can start with Sam. What is, who is driving the American animosity to Huawei? Is it coming from a particular interest group, a group of lawmakers, the intelligence community, the Department of Defense? Or has everyone just converged of, on Huawei as an obvious avatar for the rising Chinese technology threat, perfect with its uh, you know, chairman who basically lives in a bat cave and refuses to speak to the media? <laughs> um, Sam, perhaps you could <laughs> answer first. Paul, do you want to take start at that and I'll chime in? Sure, sure, if that's okay. Um, so I think, um, you know, the, 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 the concerns around Huawei, again, go back, go back for a long time. And part of it started about the uh, concern about their business practices. So in the early days, it was about, you know, were they pirating Cisco uh, software and then repurposing that? So there's, there's, there's a long, long-standing sense that Huawei, in some sense, has sort of cheated a little bit to, to get to where it is, right? So there's, there's sort of an underlying concern about Huawei on that front. And then there's the sanctions issue. So the, this, the, the, the arrest of CFL Meng was not, didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, there 
have been longstanding concerns about both ZTE and Huawei supplying equipment to rogue states like Iraq and, and, and Iran over, over, over the last decade. So th those issues have sort of coalesced around um, the company. And then there is this lingering fear about the origins of the company. Run Zhengfei was this, had some rank in the military. He was not a general, as some have asserted, but, but he, had, he came, you know, a lot, of, a lot of Chinese companies, of course, people that formed early Chinese companies came out of the intelligence or the military. So there's a sort of lingering concern that because of the origins of the company, it was supported by the Chinese government. There were certain concessionary loans that were given to the company early on to nurture it because China wanted to develop uh, you know, national champions in this space. They did not want to be dominated by Western companies. Um, and, but what happened was because of the, 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 the support of the Chinese state in, in part and the, the large domestic market that Huawei had access to, Huawei grew very rapidly as a company along with CTE, while Western companies uh, were subject to the, more to the whims of the market. And so over the last decade, a lot of, there's, basically, there's no U.S. companies in this space now. So you had Motorola at one point, you had Nortel, a Canadian company with a big U.S. footprint. They've all sort of fallen by the wayside, Lucent. So what happened is we woke up one day and Huawei and ZTE were now huge players in the mobile space. And there were no other players in the U.S., for example. And then you basically had two European companies, Ericsson and Nokia, that were competing against these Chinese companies. So, and then, and then you fast forward to 5G and all the concerns that I mentioned earlier. And so the focus of, of the U.S. concern centers around things like the Defense Department runs globally, runs, runs um, things like logistics networks on commercial mobile networks. So the big fear at the Pentagon is that if, it, if 5G is built with Huawei equipment or ZTE equipment, there's somebody sitting in Shenzhen with a big red button and they can turn off the whole network just as the U.S. is ready to flow forces in to defend Taiwan. Those kinds of fears are certainly, you know, there in the U.S. system. And so that that is in part driving this uh, this concern over Huawei. And then there's the, there is the issue of, okay, Huawei equipment could be used uh, to assist the Chinese government, for example, to launch cyber operations. So the other thing that's happened in the last decade is, particularly after the Google intrusions uh, in the U.S. in 2000, is this huge concern over, excuse me, 2010, is this huge concern over Chinese cyber theft of intellectual property. Sure. And even though that's happened without any Huawei equipment in the network, the fear is that with 5G and Chinese equipment everywhere, it'll be a little bit easier for the Chinese to, to demand that Huawei provide you know, customer data. It and would happen faster and with stuff. lower latency. <laughs> right, right. So, so that, that all these concerns are sort of coalesced around this. And also, it's just at the time, of course, when there is a, a willingness of this administration to confront China across all these technology areas. Right. Uh, and that's really the, we can talk more about that, but that, there's a broader sort of technology fear of China's rise as a technology power. Sam, what would you add to that? On that point about the broader technology fear and Huawei being sort of a emblematic of that, there's one report that I keep coming back to, which is a DOD-sponsored report called the DIUX report. It came out a couple years ago, and I think this is really the narrative that's shaping when we talk about fears that Beijing is going to tell Huawei, you know, push a button, and then this is going to take down networks around the world. It comes from from an idea of the way that China's tech system works, where you have commercial companies that are beholden to um, direction from the party, right? And I think there are a lot of questions around to what extent companies actually push back. So this DIUX report came out a couple, it came out while reform of the CFIUS process, the 
um, Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., the National Security mm-hmm. Review of Inbound Foreign Investment. That's a totally separate issue from Huawei. But the reason I'm bringing them together right now is it's because of this sort of narrative about how the, the system works in China, which is to say that um, all commercial companies in some way are being directed from you know the Politburo or the Ministry of State Security, and that is the one objective. And I think that that narrative is part of why we're also viewing Huawei and a host of other Chinese tech companies in this light of being completely beholden to Beijing. You know, one thing that I think we also need to think about is what are the commercial global ambitions of these companies at the same time and how do those interests intersect with pressures from the government at the same time? And there it's not always so straightforward. Did the cybersecurity law have anything to do with this China passing this law that uh, a lot of American technology companies said really restricted their access to the market? Was this in some sense, reciprocity for that? I mean, I know suspicions about Huawei much predate that, but do you think this was a catalyst for it? I mean, the cybersecurity law, if you look at the enforcement actions that have been taken against that law so far, the vast majority of them are aimed at Chinese companies. They're not really, they haven't implemented it as much on foreign companies. And there are things like content violations and are you in violation of this very technical regulation called the multi-level protection scheme and securing critical infrastructure, which are sort of domestic um, cybersecurity issues, which is sort of a a whole separate thread. Um, so, So it's I think a lot of these issues are getting bundled up together and creating this larger tech fear that Paul mentioned. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think on, on the just quickly on the cybersecurity law. I mean, the, the the one the one area which I think there's some mirror imaging is is on supply chain. So part of what also is driving this concern about Huawei is sort of general concern about U.S. ICT, you know, information, computer technology, communications technology supply chains, which are largely centered on China, although not exclusively. And so the Huawei Huawei fits into that that basket of concerns about U.S. supply chain. And the China cybersecurity law is also has a big portion that's concerned about supply chains. And uh, for example, they have a cybersecurity review of network products and services. So they want to review any products that are going into critical information infrastructure in China. And that is sort of a mirror image of the U.S. concern about supply chains with Huawei. Right, so right. Uh, that, that's where the sort of the link, I think the linkage uh, uh, sort of re- resides. But definitely uh, the law is, is sort of has now become part of the whole trade issue, too, uh, in terms of how China is dealing with data and dealing with um, um, things like cybersecurity. Sam, Paul, I, w- I want to uh, ask you a little bit about Huawei's corporate culture and a little bit about you know what we know, you know today that we have been sort of scratching our heads about for a long time about the origins of the company, about you know Ren Zhengfei. Uh, I started covering Huawei way back. I was a technology reporter once upon a time, and in 2003, I think it was, I took a trip down to Shenzhen. I saw the famed Tower of 10,000 Engineers, where they proudly showed me how all the engineers had these sleeping, these bed rolls under their desks. They would sleep on the floor next to their desk, you know, because they were working so hard. And you know, I was there on an employee intake day. Uh, it was fascinating because they had them all doing like there's people do calisthenics. They shout these slogans. They they had them in this sort of classroom where they were all you know being subjected to this Huawei propaganda. I could see why you know people made all sorts of comparisons to sort of you know radical Maoism. <laughs> uh, it was there was kind of a cult of personality of the founder, although he was very mysterious. And you know there were no even back then nobody was writing about Huawei without talking about how Ren Jingfei was you know a PLA officer. Nobody bothered to mention that he was like an extremely low-ranking communications engineer, but hey, whatever. I wonder, by the way, if we were to get rid of all former military brass in American telecommunications companies, how many we'd have left? It, it, uh, anyway, 
Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, 15 years later, I mean, do we know better the actual extent of, of Rin or Huawei's links? But also, I want to get you guys to talk about, you took a trip there, right? You guys recently went to Zhejiang University, uh, not to Huawei, but I think you guys talked, you were together, well, right? You talked to... Well, Paul's uh, been to, uh, was at Huawei recently, but we did a separate trip uh, to Zhejiang University where we met with a professor who had just written a, a book studying the management culture of Huawei. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hey, so what did he have to say? That'd be really fascinating to hear. So he described Huawei as, um, he said, it's kind of like a car that's going 60 miles on sixty miles an hour on the highway and changing a tire at the same time. Just to describe the fact that this company has been wow. able to be sort of constantly innovating and reinventing itself over years to stay kind of at the forefront of commercial demand. And yeah, we, we've talked about Huawei potentially are benefiting from IP theft with Cisco, state subsidies. But on top of that, you layer in this pretty innovative commercial approach at the same time. And I think you can't just say Huawei is, is only gotten to the sort of powerhouse position it is because of the state subsidies and IP theft. That's just part of the story. I think that there's this other layer on top, which is, which is, which is important. Sometimes when we talk, I, I said to Paul recently, it's like, sometimes it's like we're talking about two separate companies when you hear the way that it's discussed in the media and in government circles in the U.S. And then the, you know, the, the sort of Chinese corporate titan view. Um, it's like, sometimes I'm like, it's like, are, are we talking about the same company? Yeah, that's a great a great point. You know, and and I think the pro part of the problem is transparency. So the company is not publicly traded. Um, there's been a lot of efforts to do sort of due diligence internally to the company. You know, who owns the who owns the company? They, the, Huawei says it's employee owned, but it's it's tricky because I think in the West we're used to companies uh, of this size. This is a huge company, right? It's a global company with 180,000 people globally, and you know, it's a, it's a 90 billion dollar a year company. Um, and so the fact is, we don't really not a lot is known as still about the corporate corporate governance and corporate structure and ownership structure. And so this also feeds into you know, concerned about the company. Um, but I think Sam's point is really about the different views of the company being stark. I think that the real, the real bifurcation is between the industry, the telecom industry, and the way Huawei is viewed, where, again, it's viewed as a company that's providing innovative technology uh, at relatively low cost and, and high performance. Um, and, um, you know, regardless of its history, yes, it, it, there were all these issues back in the day, but I think it's generally regarded as a company that has matured. There's still some concerns about how it does business, of course, and the culture. That story on culture, by the way, always pops up like every year. I, I think I saw that first back in 15 years ago, you know, with I mean, with Penny Sender in you know in, in Hong Kong, but I mean it, it's a, it's an important it's an important part of the story I think. But I think the, the the way the company operates as a business is 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 sort of opaque, and I think that generates a lot of concern. But within the industry, if you look at sort of it, the way it's viewed as in terms of its products and its and its commitment to service and and how clients view it, then you know it has a more positive uh, a more posi a much more positive um, um, uh, reputation. Mm -hmm. But it's tricky because outside of that industry, people tend to read the media and they read stories about the company and they tend to, there isn't a whole lot of independent research. Now this this company or this uh, book that was written by the professor in Zhejiang University is part of a sort of a genre of literature that sort of that that um, that sort of a hagiography of Huawei, a touting innovation and it's important um, and they had real access to the company for I think three years and so they got a really insider look and access to Ren Zhengfei and they got all, you know, so they, they, wow. they that book at least I think is probably the best look internally to the company because it wasn't, it wasn't just a quick, 
uh, and dirty kind of like you know Huawei is great as a national champion. It was an attempt to really get under the hood and why their what their management practices are and how they've succeeded in this very difficult and competitive market of uh, global telecom market. And I think it's not even just that, you know, there's the industry view and also a prime example. I got a phone call from my cousin a few months ago who lives in North Carolina, not far from Kaiser. And she said, she's a photographer in Durham. And she said, I want to buy a cam, I want to buy a Huawei camera because they have a Leica lens. And a Leica lens is like this top notch professional photographer lens. And she's like, this is the only handset I can get that has a Leica lens this is amazing. Can I get it? And I said, yeah, get that phone. You know, I mean, why does the Chinese government want to spy on her? I don't know. <laughs> because she's your cousin. <laughs> right. Well, they, of, of, of course there's that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, uh, speaking of these suspicions, Paul and Sam, you talked about the fear of a big red button that Huawei could uh, give to the Communist Party to shut down whole networks. But even short of that, surely there are some legitimate national security concerns when it comes to Huawei. Even if they are a private company, it's very clear that if the party wants Huawei to do its bidding, there are limits to how much Huawei can push back. And that's the case for every Chinese technology company. Even if uh, Snowden's revelations uh, prove to Beijing that American companies can be used to spy with or without those companies' consent, that does not uh, invalidate the American concerns, does it? No, that's a very good point, Jeremy. I think absolutely there, there are concerns here. So the, but, but I think that the problem is that that can't be looked at in isolation. So if you're, if you're again, going back to the industry, carriers are very aware of these kinds of concerns, right? And so um, carriers want to look at different vendors. So they value things like vendor diversity. So they want to be able to buy from different vendors. And then they're used to doing things like dealing with security of the whole network, right? And so they so they, they, they take that into account in the way they architect a the network. And so, um, yes, there's always concern about a, a gov- what the government can do uh, with a company and what they can order the company to do. So that, that and that's that sort of regard, that, that could happen for any vendor. And of course, the closeness of, in, in China, it's a little different because you have things like the national intelligence law, which says, uh, I think in Article 7, something like, you know, it's very vague, though. It's in general, it says it says companies and individuals should cooperate with the government on intelligence work. Right now, some some have interpreted this as meaning that the Chinese government could order Huawei to participate in you know offensive cyber operations. And I and I think that that's probably a, you know, a sort of a reading a little bit too much into that, because, you know, if, if the government really wants the help from a company like Huawei, they don't they don't need a law first of all to do right. That, right? Um, and no and no country, I think, would pass a public law that says, you know, know, your companies have to do this. So the problem with, with that, that view, though, is at stake is that Huawei is a, is, a, is a global company, right, operating in 170 countries. And so if it became clear that Huawei was simply an arm of the Chinese government and was doing, doing uh, you know, Beijing's bidding at every turn, then they wouldn't be able to operate as a global company. So that, that's the problem here is that the company is sort of forced to, to prove a negative, and it's really difficult. And so what's, what, what I think has happened in response to that is, for example, in the U.S., UK and now in Germany, they've decided to sort of try to balance these these legitimate security issues with the needs of the carriers and their desire to have access to to uh, you know to, to to cost effective and and high performance equipment from different vendors. And so in the UK, they set up the cyber the Huawei Cybersecurity Center to review Huawei equipment and source code. They've been doing that for seven years yeah, now. But those are, those are still UK. all Huawei employees, right? 
but no, but there, but there, there, there are there are GCHQ there 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 are British government employees there that are all oh, over the also, place. Absolutely. Okay, so okay. in a sense, Huawei is opening up its source code to the British intelligence services of GCHQ, right? Yeah. And, and now Germany is gonna Germany is in a particularly difficult situation because they they have a big the uh, German t- uh, carriers have a big commitment to Huawei. So they've also set up a center in Bonn uh, that will do th- that's also reviewing uh, opening up Huawei source code to the German Federal Office for Information Security. And hmm. so the Germans are have put out statements about this and say, look, we need proof of this. So we can't. If you're going to make us make a decision, for example, about who to include in our network architecture, we need we need we can't just. They're telling. On, they're, they're telling the U.S. They're telling. They're, telling they're making. They're essentially saying we're not going to we're not going to accept at face value just that Huawei is a concern. We want we want to we want proof of this. And right. in the meantime, we're going to go ahead and, and and review set up this security center and review Huawei source code so that we can balance. This have a balanced approach to carrier needs and to to legitimate security concerns, and that's what that's what the approach is. Paul, is that a, is that effective? Do you think? Well, it's controversial. It's very controversial because it's very difficult, for example, to verify that what the software you're testing from Huawei headquarters in your center in in uh, in in the UK is exactly the same software that's being deployed by the carriers in their networks right. on a day to day basis, because carriers get opt for different. Different features in the software, and you know, there's so every carrier is running a different version of the software. So it's a problem of so-called binary equivalence. What is exactly the equivalence between what you're testing and what's running in the network? And the problem is, as you get to things like 5G, which is all about software, it's software in the cloud, it's software-defined networks. So now, and it's AI, it's artificial intelligence algorithms that are controlling aspects of the network. So now it becomes much more difficult to try to use that approach uh, and to and to really review all the software. Software. Now you're talking about you know millions and you know lot, lots of software code that has to be reviewed. And so Paul, Paul before, didn't the UK yeah, government yeah. come out recently, yeah. like in July, and it say actually there are mm-hmm. some shortcomings around what we can actually right. verify? So how do you, what do you make of those? And I think it seems like that's a pretty big deal because we've been sort of if we hold up this UK cybersecurity center as the model for let's right. just take this model, beef it up, and maybe right. this can be used in a US 5G environment. So what do we make of the UK statements now? Well, I think that those statements centered around things like binary equivalence, that, that, that it's really hard to establish that kind of binary equivalence because it requires you know, the company to then to, 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 to do a lot of work to turn over specific kinds of software that is deploying to a particular carrier. Um, and every carrier is different. So then do you have to test the software for every carrier? Um, so it's, it's a really, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big, big issue. And th- th- this costs money too, right? Who's going to pay for this, right? This is, th- there's also sort of a resource and So and short of issue. people starting to trust Huawei, there's, there's not really anything that you can do that's 100% No, there's, not, there's nothing, you can't, you can't guarantee... Um, security. So, in a sense, the co- the countries that are being asked to choose here, they're sort of faced with this really difficult dilemma: do I do I go with you know more expen- what's likely to be more expensive equipment if I can't use Huawei, and it's it could be in some cases you know have less performance. It depends on the piece of equipment. Not 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 always the case because Huawei has a lot of experience and its equipment is very good in some cases. And is it does it really what is your how much has your security really gone up? Because the same vulnerabilities of five G, it's you know it's it's, it's subject to all the same cybersecurity vulnerabilities of 
any software and cloud-based uh, kind of a network. And so are you getting a little bit of peace of mind because it's not Chinese equipment? But in mm -hmm. a sense, the real difficulty is much is beyond sort of who, who makes the equipment. There's still all these vulnerabilities that you have to account for. And so the question is, you know, is that for countries, that's a really difficult choice. I mean, it, it, you're not, it's not a clear choice. And also because there's no sort of clear evidence that Huawei is putting back doors in its equipment. The UK experience has not, you know, found any of that. Interesting. Um, so it, Huawei seems to have, you know, an almost impossible public relations problem. And I mean, I think it's very easy to see why, Paul, you sometimes get into fights on, well, people attack you on Twitter, rather, uh, because you say something about Huawei that is not critical. And any suggestion on, on the internet that maybe there are advantages to Google being in China is met with similar harsh criticism. But Huawei actually, they hired expensive communications and uh, government relations lobbyists, uh, K Street powerhouse firms, but it looks like they didn't really earn their keep. What do you know about Huawei's efforts in DC? And why, do, why, why does it seem that things have only gone from bad to worse for them? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, they've they've hired a lot of um, Western, uh, you know, government relations officials. They, that have they fired them recently. They, <laughs> right, right. Well, in the U.S., you know, they 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 for a long time they made a big effort to get into the U.S. market. Um, they have they have research centers here in Texas and in in California. And they they do a lot of they, they fund research at universities here on 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 uh, on wireless communications. So you know they 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 didn't they they for a long time have tried to break into the U.S. market, um, and you know they, they didn't really <laughs> I think give up uh, more more until until more recently when when the sort of the pickup of the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Uh, government sort of uh, pushback on, on on the company. And so I think that that. You know, in hiring Western faces to, to try to, to try to defend the company, you know, it's just it's just been a really tough tough slog because you're you're dealing with these some entrenched concerns about Huawei um, deep within the U.S. government and the military, um, and and you know, again, it, it's hard for them to prove a negative. They they just you know that that that's a, a a public relations hurdle that's really hard to get over. How do you prove that you're not close to the to the, you're not you're not beholden to the Chinese government uh, or the Chinese Communist Party to that they, they can't they can't simply walk in and order you to do something. It's really tough to, to you can't prove that. So the problem is, it, 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 you're, you're right, they really have a PR problem that is is really impossible to overcome. So now I think they're, they sort of realize this and they're pushing back on this. They're trying to, you know, do lob, they're lobbying heavily in Germany, for example, where they've had, uh, and in the UK, where they've had uh, some success in, in, in the, uh, in, in, in selling equipment. So I think they sort of, they've, they've given up on the US and they're, and, and the other five eyes to some degree, Canada, um, maybe not not yet Canada, but Australia certainly and New Zealand. Um, and then the, the really linchpin for them is 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 Germany and the UK because right, if, they, if, right. if those if those dominoes fall, then then the EU essentially it's, it's um, market that becomes. You, know, you say dominoes fall yeah. because I mean that that's where I'm going with this, this next question. Uh, you know, we've seen this growing chorus of rebuke. We've seen the US really pressure a lot of its allies, as you've said. Uh, we've seen you know, Australia, New Zealand have already sort of joined in. Canada, well, you know, Canada's <laughs> kind of tricky right now, given that they were, you know, involved in in the uh, in in the detention, the arrest of 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 Jinping's daughter. Uh, but you know, Deutsche, as you said, they're reviewing their their telecoms. 
vendor strategy. Huawei has, you know, spent all this money, as you say, on the cybersecurity center in, in, in the UK. But are we seeing something like a digital iron curtain descending? Sam, I mean, maybe, do you think that we're getting ahead of ourselves if we're saying this is the beginning of a new, uh, you know, genuine Cold War? Uh, what does that scenario look like, you know, if, if that really is the fact? I mean, if this is just like Winston Churchill, Fulton, Missouri, 1947, and the Iron Curtain, is, is there a digital curtain descending? So I'm seeing two separate stories play out at once, right? If you just look at the government-to-government rhetoric, absolutely. This looks like a digital iron curtain, um, and I think that that is only getting worse. But let's just also remember that at the same time, we have U.S. companies that are continuing to operate over there, and new partnerships are being announced even regularly. Um, you've got, you know, like Intel going in and doing more um, tie-ups with companies like Baidu and AI, and there's so that's not stopping. I think business is going on um, even as you have a kind of more hostile environment overall. And sort of the question is going to be what, what, how, where do these two things converge? I think that we also need to be you know, cognizant of what are the downsides to this decoupling, right? What does that look like in an environment where you have research and investment and supply chains so tightly intertwined? Um, and it's there are going to be downsides from a U.S. competitive standpoint. Um, there's going to be enormous cost to unwinding those supply chains. And even from a national security view, if we say, you know, let's let let we're going to lose sight entirely of what China's doing in these emerging fields and get blindsided when they have a major breakthrough. Like, is that a good idea either? So I think even as this environment gets really tough, and I think it's going to continue to be that way, it's going to be important to kind of keep sight of where decoupling is going to be pretty devastating and may even be impossible in some areas to do. Hmm, yeah. Yeah, I, I would just add, I think, you know, the question is sort of how far to go and all these things. So when, when we try to describe the what is the U.S.-China tech cold war, which I have been using as, as a hashtag and I've gotten some pushback on, uh, there, there's really three really large baskets here of, of issues. And some of them are short-term, some of them long-term. So the first one is the trade space, where a lot of the key concerns around the 301 investigation, like industrial policies, made in China 2025, market access, cyber theft of IP, these are all centered on, on technology. Then the second basket is, is a, a, a sort of shorter, or a medium and longer-term problem. And that really centers on supply chains. And that's that's things like uh, you know Huawei. It's things like the investment restrictions that we mentioned earlier, Sam mentioned earlier for CFIUS. Export controls the U.S. is considering around emerging technologies like artificial intelligence, robotics and automation, and quantum computing, for example. Um, and then the third basket is the sort of struggle for strategic long-term dominance of, of, of the technologies of the future. So there, AI, again, AI, quantum, supercomputing, and then you might even throw 5G into there because it's, these are long-term things that are going to extend out to, you know, for ten, for a decade at least. So the problem is that, that um, you know, the, 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 as Sam mentioned, there's this tight coupling in some of these areas between China. So the question is how far do you decouple before you start having effects that are, that are really negative? So everybody is sort of, there's a general agreement that maybe China, there are too, there are too many supply chains in China. So yes, maybe the U.S. companies should diversify and, 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 and do this. But the problem is for 30 years, companies have been told, optimize your supply chains and go, go to places like China where there, there has been cheaper, for example, labor. But now it's really more about skilled labor, not about cheaper labor. It's about skilled engineers 
engineers. Um, Foxconn can can you know can build a facility to build iPhones in Zhejiang and easily find thirty thousand engineers to you know to <laughs> staff it up. But if, when they go to Wisconsin, they have a lot of problems, right? So it's not e- so, so some supply chains can be modified or moved, but some of them are really just difficult because all these things are available in Asia. All these high-end products around smartphones, for example, the whole smartphone supply chain is in Asia. It's not anywhere else. Um, and they're in a smartphone is a perfect example of sort of the globalization of the, of the high-tech sector, uh, and that could only be built in China unless you want to pay you know five thousand dollars for your iPhone. So that so the so is this suicidal? I mean, what America is doing right I mean, now, given this lead in supply right. chain. Well, we 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 at, we at Eurasia Group we're we're grappling with this idea of next year one of our top risks. So we, we every year we do top risk. I'm giving you a little bit of a preview here. I hope I don't get in trouble. But <laughs> but we we're worried about next year what we call innovation winter because mm. the problem is that as you if you take into account all these different things happening, decoupling of supply chains, restrictions on STEM visas. Uh, restrictions around investments and, and export controls on really cutting-edge technologies. If you put all this together, companies are making decisions. They're putting money instead of an innovation. They're re- they're building a factory in in Malaysia to, to, to so they don't have to pay tariffs, you know, to, uh, on on goods going to the U.S. So all this sort of saps a lot of the resources and energy out of what has been a very innovative supply chain with China is part of it, right? I mean, Qualcomm and Broadcom generate huge amounts of revenue uh, from China, and that goes into their innovation because they're innovating for the China market. So if those things start breaking down, then the question is, you know, some of the U.S.'s most innovative companies, are they going to be able to be as innovative in this new environment? And are they, you know, is, is this, are all these things going to add up to what we call innovation winter. So I think that's the that's the downside. So the question is sort of how far these things go and what happens out of the out of the, the trade negotiations coming. Can we get back to some sort of engagement with China that also addresses some of these very legitimate concerns over market access? You know, these are really these are big issues for U.S. companies. Um, Sam, what do you what do you think of this idea of, of an innovation winter? I mean, we've had this delightfully fruitful period of cross pollination between the Valley and 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 and, and Beijing. Uh, and with all of our wonderful gadgets being assembled in, in, in Shenzhen, you know, where the entire supply chain is, uh, what happens now? I mean, is this is this innovation winter a coming? Is winter coming? <laughs> so this is where I want to go back to that report I brought up earlier, the DIUX report. Uh-huh. And I just, I can't really harp on this enough. I feel like we're in this moment where DOD is driving the narrative around global trade and investment. And I get it. National security is vital. And I don't want anyone to say that that's not something that I value, right? But should that be the sort of driving force behind the way that we're looking at innovation and trade? I, that's, I don't think that they should be in the driver's seat on that. And that's kind of the problem is it's, right. it's a misfit. Right. Um, it seems like a short-sighted view of what national security constitutes. I mean, this is... Ultimately, I think damaging to national security. Well, the pendulum. I think the pendulum is always kind of swinging back and forth. And what's happened is, under the, for example, the U.S. national security strategy that came out earlier in the mm-hmm. year, there was this new concept of the national security innovation base. And you know, that's that's a really interesting concept to get your head around. So that means that innovation in the U.S. is somehow now it's all, a really wrapped of, up with national security. Right, right. So. That's, that accounts for, for example, artificial intelligence and robotics and automation and quantum uh, sciences being included in this emerging technologies uh, list, for example, that Commerce put out last month, and an attempt to sort of uh, gain control of, of the direction and how those, those sectors develop and what 
is allowed to, to be exported or not. So I think that's, that, that's sort of a paradigm shift. And I think industry is still trying to adjust to that. Where they, they want to understand, they understand national security concerns. This has always been a concern in the U.S. But they want to they understand what those boundaries are and how far those boundaries are going to be pushed because they are concerned that it's going to, it's going to result in a, in a degradation of investment or in their ability, for example, to, to decide they want to invest in China in a joint venture, but they're going to be transferring technology and that's going to be a concern uh, suddenly to the U.S. government and, and, and you know, impede their ability to expand, for example. So we're in a sort of a, a, the eye of the hurricane here. Sam and I have talked about this, where we don't really know how far some of these things are going to go in terms of, um, you know, the, uh, is it going to be a worst case scenario where we get an innovation winner? Is there going to be some pulling back, some agreement uh, between the two sides as a result of the trade negotiations that, that leads us, you know, on a less uh, dire path? I've argued for, I, I wrote an article in Foreign Affairs with my colleague, Loran Lasky, in the earlier this fall, and we argued for yeah, something called this small yard, high fence approach, which isn't our mm. phrase. I think this was former Secretary of Defense Gates first used this. Anyway, the idea is figure out what do you need to protect, define that in, a, in precise terms, and then build defenses around that rather than using this blunt instrument that kind of sweeps up everything. And I think that's the idea here. You know, Paul and I are not saying that these national security concerns are not valid. They absolutely are. But can we be more targeted when we're identifying what they are? So when we look at, you know, Paul mentioned the new export controls and expanded lists around what falls under technologies related to national security. So as we're going through that list and we're trying to figure out, okay, how do we identify what those technologies are that we need to put be more cautious about in terms of who has access to what in, you know, in, in, in kind of global trade and investment world, how do we ident- how do we whittle that down? And I think I don't think that's an easy task, but I think as long as we're getting input from you know, not just the, the the sort of DOD lens, but it's this broader view with an eye to balancing the innovation and understanding that U.S. power is also for decades has been defined by our ability to compete and be innovative and that that also is a part of that. So how can we take a small yard, high fence approach to pinpointing where the concerns are? I really like that small yard, high fence. I think that's a, that's a terrific concept. So, I mean, essentially, you're saying the problem is similar to the general economic uh, issue with China, that there is a lot of, uh, there are many problems in China and America's economic relationship, but many people think that tariffs are the worst possible way of solving them. There's a genuine concern with Huawei. That's not in dispute, but the current methods are scattershot and are not effective and threaten to disrupt American business and innovation. Would that be a good summary? Uh, yeah, and I think view? even that yeah. small yard high fence view can be applied to Huawei. I mean, Paul, you've talked to me about the idea that we need to distinguish between a handset and, you know, having Huawei equipment in the core network backbone. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Because I think that's a good illustration of that concept applied to Huawei. Well, yeah. When you talk to carriers, for example, the US go- they've heard from US, the U.S. government officials that they're worried that if there's too many Huawei handsets, it can all be used as a botnet to, you know, <laughs> to take down something. So, and carriers, you know, they, they, they have a lot of experience with these kinds of things, and they sort of say, well, we know how to handle that. That's not really a concern. So the handset uh, is one thing. Now, the problem is, of course, handsets are getting more capable. There's, there are AI algorithms on the handset. And so, in general, there's sort of a, a, a huge capability increase in uh, edge devices like 
handsets. But in general, the core of the network is really the concern because that's that that would be uh, where you know, uh, an intelligence service would, would want to exploit something in the, in the, in the core of the network. So, uh, you know, that, that, and that's, for example, what France has done. France has kept Huawei out of the core of the network, but they allow Huawei equipment in the radio access part of the network, for example. So you can make these kinds of distinctions about where you allow equipment, depending on your level of concern about a country of origin of equipment. Or you can architect the network architecture to, to, you know, to build in more security and try to, you know, mitigate some of these concerns also. So it's, it's a tricky thing with 5G because it's so, as I mentioned earlier, it's so complicated. And I think people don't, a lot of people don't really understand what it is, you know, what is 5G on, on the policy side. So we've, we've done a white paper, which I'll recommend, which is trying to lay out sort of the geopolitics of 5G. What's the title of that? It's people? called the geopolitics of 5G. Ah. So, and it's up on the EG website and it's an attempt to capture some of this and uh, it talks about standards and talks about um, uh, national policy. Policies around around 5G and tries to tries to you know bring bring a little clarity to some of these issues which you see sometimes reported in the media and they, they, they tend to repeat some of the memes that are not not quite accurate and this is an attempt to clarify some of that. Well, we'll put a link to that in there. Uh, I mean, one last question for both of you, and that is, you know, I think Sam's offered some very uh, useful suggestions and so have you, Paul. But what is in general? What's the way back from this? What are, what are the forces that are keeping this from? you know, passing the point of no return if we're not already there yet and, and might be able to pull us back to sort of sanity on, on these, these issues. Not just Huawei, but just right. more on what you've been calling the, the technology Cold War. Well, uh, let me just, I, I, this, this, is, this is a really tough question, but I think that there you have to sort of step back and talk about, you know, what, what other factors are driving um, the broader U.S.-China sort of confrontation. And there, of course, there's a lot of issues. The U.S. Is, uh, and others, the U.S. business community, and now and more and more the U.S. government have basically decided that in China, the the process of reform and opening that had been uh, unfolding under under you know, under previous Chinese leaders before Xi Jinping, Chinese history didn't start with Xi Jinping, but there's a perception that Xi has taken China in a different direction and a more authoritarian direction, uh, less less market mechanisms, uh, etc. And so that that there's a feeling that that the dynamic that had uh, that sort of positive process that had been unfolding pre prior to C is now is now sort of inexorably going in another direction. And so that's sort of the underlying factor behind things like the Pence speech at the Hudson Institute, right? Basically that the party is in control here and that the Chinese system is evolving in a way that is sort of diametrically opposed to to, to, to the US right, system. Expanding so, values gap. Right. right. And there's no so there's so it's, it's about trust. So there's no trust essentially between the two the two systems. Um, China is has gone from being a, a stakeholder under under the Obama administration a stakeholder in the international system to being an, an adversary, essentially. And so that dynamic is really tough to separate. And that's what's sort of driving underlying and driving the tech issues. And so it, until that gets, <laughs> until there's improvement in that, until we sort of get back to some level of engagement, um, we sort of dug this deep hole. I think the, 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 what I see is that the current negotiations, if they're dug us out of that hole, so now there is some engagement, but there's still no trust, right? I mean, so there sure. still has to, so what could come out of the trade negotiations would be a sense of trying to build some trust going forward. But it's really tough because all these issues um, are going to get, you know, they're are going to continue to polarize the debate in both countries. Sam, what do you have to add to that? Oh, gosh, I don't even know. I mean, I think <laughs> I just feel like we're kind of headed over a cliff right now. Um, and, and, you know, and even the fact that we're having this conversation where we're sort of taking this, what I think is a more balanced look at Huawei, but knowing that there's going to there, there will be people in the audience who will say, oh, we're just being naive about the national security concerns and apologizing for China and you're a panda hugger reference to your uh, last 
podcast on blaming China. <laughs> like, are we panda huggers because we're trying to take a more holistic, small yard, high fence approach here? No, I don't think so. But we need to be able to at least have an environment where it's okay to have these more kind of nuanced discussions without it being a black and white issue is the first step. Um, I noticed last week that um, I think the, uh, the the rotating chairman of Huawei held a press conference, which was kind of unusual in that he actually accepted questions from the journalists in the audience. So Just. more more of this kind of thing. And, you know, Kaiser, with your background, you can probably comment on the communication strategies involved there. But I think as there's so much suspicion about our Chinese companies, particularly in the tech sector, beholden to orders from Beijing, you know, the extent to which they can kind of show that they're willing to be more transparent about the very concerns that the U.S. is talking about is going to be helpful for having those conversations. So more of that. Yeah. Sam, that makes me laugh a little. In 2012, Kaiser and I recorded a podcast with uh, Will Moss, who at the time was doing communications for Motorola in China, and David Wolf, who uh, is a uh, very experienced telecom and media consultant, I guess, in, 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 uh, now in America, but he used to live in Beijing. And the... The conversation was about why Huawei's reputation is so bad and what exactly is Huawei. And I remember at one point screaming uh, at the microphone, you know, Ren Zhang Fei, if you're out there, come out of your cave! <laughs> or something like that. Um, <laughs> anyway, he didn't come out of his cave in 2012, and I, I can't see that happening. Yeah. <sighs> Alas. Well, guys, I, uh, unbelievably fun conversation with you both. Uh, and, you know, worrisome, but thanks so much for taking the time to come to talk to us, both of you. Uh, let's go on to recommendations. Uh, before we do that, I do want to quickly remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina. If you enjoy the Seneca Podcast and all the other shows in our network, like the Fantastic Tech Buzz and Ta for Ta, and if you enjoy the wide-ranging content on SupChina, then the best thing you can do is to sign up for SupChina Access, where your support will help to make all of this possible in the, into the future. You can, we can keep bringing you the reporting, the conversations, and the videos, all, the, all that stuff that you like. Now, uh, on to recommendations. Jeremy, kick us off. What do you have first? Okay. I, you know, with, I have small kids, so I read a lot of Dr. Seuss books. As one does. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's one that I had never heard of that I uh, acquired called You're Only Old Once, huh. a book for obsolete children. <laughs> and uh, on the back it says, is this a children's book? Well, not immediately. You buy a copy for your child now and you give it to him on his 70th birthday. Um, so it's basically about getting old and falling apart. It's very it's funny. It's appropriate for me then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, hey. <laughs> uh, Jeremy, last time you saw me, you said, Kaiser, your whiskers are very silver. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's I, true. I shaved them but all I was off, thinking yeah. more about me being the one falling apart <laughs> in recommending this book. <laughs> Sam, what do you have for us this week? So I'm watching the Netflix remake of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and it's incre huh. it's incredible. It's for grown-ups. It's very creepy. It's dark. It's dark humor, and it's incredibly well done. It has as Sabrina, um, the actress that played Sally in Mad Men, Mad Men, and she's oh, all wow. grown up and fantastic. Oh wow! Yeah, you know, I've actually heard this is like the third person to say really good things about that show. Okay, that's you know. Three, third time's charm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put that on my watch list for sure. Then, thanks, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Wow, wow, that that, that kind of blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Paul, you're up. What do you have? Well, is, is it too cynical for me to to, to propose um, 
the Kaifu Lee's book, the AI AI superpowers. Oh no, no, because I think we loved you know it. it's it's it's. I think a lot of people maybe have just read the you know the dust jacket, but I think um, it deserves a little more careful read because it's sort of some of these issues that we've talked about are, are, are in there, but it's also sort of a human story about his journey uh, from you know sort of high, high level executive and work driven to, to to sort of some of the human aspects and concern about AI and automation and how it's going to affect um, societies in the future. So it has a lot of it sort of runs the gamut of you know all these issues we've discussed and but then you know, you got AI and and then um, sort of the human element that he brings into it very well so I, I recommend a close read of that I think a lot of people as I say I think maybe just 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 skim it but I think um, it's it's a very thoughtful oh, it's not and skim. I think there are a couple of things that, besides the human story I think the things that I, I took away from it first of all just a great history of right. internet entrepreneurship right. in China exactly. I mean it's just one of the best most readable histories of it right. secondly this sort of conceptual idea uh, of why Chinese data is so qualitatively different uh, than than uh, the, the data that American companies, this sort of going heavy versus going light dichotomy that he draws. I thought that was extremely eye-opening for me. I thought it was just yeah, a really good book. Kaiser, I want to, that's actually, I agree with you about everything in the book, but the data argument, and maybe this is a subject for another podcast that we should that's, do. Yeah, we should talk data. Yeah. We, should, we need a whole podcast mm-hmm. on data because I think that the way that Kai-Fu Lee characterizes China's AI advantage because of the access to data is not... I, I disagree with it. I think that they... Ooh, they, I think, right. I think that right. it might mean that maybe Chinese... Uh, AI companies are going to be really good at, you know, tailoring their algorithms to the needs of Chinese teenagers and what they're buying online. But I don't know uh-huh. how that translates outside of China in terms of the type of data yeah. that they no, have he, access to. He, exa- and- he said the same thing when we asked him about that. Does that necessarily translate? No, it's basically for China, right? But yeah, uh, and and your proposal is accepted. We will. I've actually recently invited you to come on for a live show, and we'll hold you to that and make sure that data is part of that conversation. Thank you. That All sounds right. great. <laughs> uh, my uh, recommendation is actually for a rare thing. It's directly related to our conversation right now. It was an op-ed in the Washington Post by the UPenn scholar Scott Moore, uh, who is director of UPenn's China Center. Um, you know, it's a piece about Huawei. Uh, it's called The Huawei Fallout Leaves Companies and Countries with an Impossible Choice. It's very good. I, I highly recommend it. Uh, it's a nice short op-ed, but I think it gave, gives you a lot to think about. So, again, thanks so much for coming on. I mean, Sam, it was great to talk to you, and I'm really looking – you're heading down here in a couple of days, and I'll, we're going to uh, go out and eat Chinese food on Christmas Day, right? I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. Bringing my five-year-old yeah. and all of his crazies down. Cool. All right. I want to get in on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you go. Come on down. Come on down, Jeremy. Man, great to talk to you as always. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Sam. Thanks. Good, Paul. thoughtful questions, Jeremy. Appreciate it. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn and edited by Jason McRonald and me. Special thanks this week to Jim Millward, who was kind enough to let us convert his dining room into a makeshift studio. Drop us an email at Seneca at subchina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And uh, make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Tyson Cynic Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Plus China, New Voices, China Econ Talk, and Top Talk. More great shows coming soon, really soon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.